Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Ken Hollings on a guide to your stars in his new book, The Space Oracle. Ken Hollins is a writer, broadcaster, cultural theorist and lecturer based in London. He is the author of the books Destroy All Monsters, Welcome to Mars and The Bright Labyrinth, at least a couple of which we've talked about on previous Little Atoms. His work has been published in numerous journals and anthologies throughout the world and he has written and presented programmes for BBC Radio 3, Radio 4, NPS in the Netherlands, ABC Australia and our own Resonance 104.4 FM. Ken teaches regularly at the Royal College of Art and Central St Martins and has presented his work at the Royal Institution, the British Library, Tate Britain, the Berlin Académie de Kunst, the International Space University in Strasbourg and the Venice Biennale. Ken's latest book, The Space Oracle, A Guide to Your Stars, is what we're going to be talking about today. Ken, welcome back to the show. It's always a pleasure to be on Little Atoms, Neil. Always a pleasure. So tell us, first of all, what the idea is behind The Space Oracle. It is an attempt to retell the history of astronomy in a very fragmented, fractured and on occasion very personal way. I was doing research on the subject and I got fascinated by how histories of astronomy present not so much certain facts but a kind of hierarchy of facts. And, and as I continued my research I became uh, increasingly aware of a... a criticism which is referred to as presentism. So there is a view that says that our histories of science, knowledge, etc. are sort of structured in a kind of pyramidal way so that we tend to see our viewpoint as being the best viewpoint. I mean, it's a kind of Hegelian sense of progression. So here we are on this on this ascending curve towards whatever our mastery of the universe is going to be in, in the fullness of time. You know, the, tran- the translation of knowledge into wisdom, as it were. But we tend to look back at where we've come from and be a little disparaging, a little dismissive. So, you know, I, I deliberately was bringing astrology into this story, not because I wanted to validate astrology and demonise astronomy. Um, I didn't want to do that. It wasn't, it wasn't a statement against rationalism in favour of the irrational. It was saying, actually, these systems, which we tend to look almost literally down on, because they don't have a complete... They don't have the complete picture we have, we tend to see them as being 
in error. Uh, but if we actually examine how that view of the cosmos fits with their society, with what they require, it works. It's not false knowledge. It's true knowledge to that culture, to that society, to that civilization. So that was partly was, it was an attempt to sort of take into account this, this kind of presentist criticism. And I think also to sort of uh, inquire with what we mean by knowledge. In, in the book, I actually state at one point, all knowledge begins with error. And in a sense, it does. We make an assumption based on the phenomena, the, the observable phenomena we have before us, and we draw a conclusion. And it is almost inevitable that that conclusion is going to be false. It's going to be an error. And then we slowly correct that error. But in the correction, we end up sort of being slightly dismissive of where we were before. Oh, did we really believe that old myth? And it's like, yeah, all right, it's an old myth to you now, but it was not a myth to the people that were working with it. No, and of course, there's a point in the past where astronomy and astrology are indivisible. It's the same th- same thing. Yes. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think when you begin to see that there is, there, there is a moment when astronomy starts to detach itself and it begins to, it's beginning to see a different universe. And I'm not disparaging that either. I'm just saying that that is an interesting period of emergence, which is what we should see it as. But in that process of emergence, new myths start to impose themselves, new narratives begin to emerge. And because we actually need narratives in order to make sense of all this, we we attach ourselves to them. So, for example, I'm a little hard on Galileo, even though he has a sign of the zodiac entirely to him. He actually, one of the houses of my, of my astrological array, my zodiac, is named after him. So I pay him that respect, but I am actually a little bit I'm a little bit critical of him because I think there has been this narrative which has emerged. And and it's interesting that it comes quite late. You know, Galileo was not really here nor there until the mid-19th century when the idea of the scientist as a division of labour, as a a profession, begins to emerge. And so he becomes almost like a kind of, and people are going to hate me for this, but he's kind of like the patron saint of scientists in the sense that he is presented as the figure of scientific authority. But also like that lone genius thing. Exactly, exactly. There's that myth as well. And and so it builds up certainly into the 20th century when you get to Brecht's play on the life of Galileo. This image of Galileo as, you know, the one individual, you know, the the disciplined rational mind that says, no, wait a minute, the cosmos works like this. And the forces of reaction, you know, the astrologers, the church sort of say, no, 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 no. Show him the instruments. Let there be torture and death if he continues in this position. And so he's he's forced to sort of recant. But then he's saying, yeah, but it still moves. You know, the earth still moves around the sun. And, and that's fine as a myth. But, but, you know, in the case of Brecht, he's beginning to sort of draw parallels, which we still unconsciously accept that with that change comes social change, comes cultural change, comes political change. Once once we are no longer the centre of the universe, then the Pope is no longer the centre of the church. The king is no longer centre of a, of, a, of a regime of power. And I would actually argue that we're, we're looking at it the wrong way around, that I think changes were already taking place in the social and the political fabric, which Galileo's discoveries reflect and fit in with. So this idea that there is, you know, that there is literally a revolution taking place when the the Earth is moved away from the centre of the universe and becomes a planet orbiting the sun in the solar system, there is actually more congruence there than a kind of cause and effect relationship. 
Um, you mentioned that Galileo is one of your 12 houses, yeah. shall we say. So let's talk about how, how this book is structured and why. Well, I've followed... First of all, the title, The Space Oracle, is derived from a late Victorian Edwardian handbook called The Lady's Oracle, uh, which my wife, Rachel, grew up with and absolutely loved this this book. The thing I loved about it is the fact that it was supposedly written by Cornelius Agrippa, one of the great alchemists in, in, in Europe. Um, and The Lady's Oracle was a, was a kind of handbook which had exercises and games and pursuits that you could follow almost like a parlor trick book in which you could you could find out what your romantic life was going to be who you were going to fall in love with how you were perceived by your suitors or the society around you and and I first of all I just loved the idea of interacting with a book in that way. And and it kind of reminded of how people interact with horoscopes, books of horoscopes, sun signs, etc. So that was one leap. The other one is that I one of my kind of guiding spirits, one of my mentors, if you like, in this book is the American artist Joseph Cornell. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this amazing American surrealist who he's best known for these beautiful boxes that that create that contain a kind of almost a random assemblage of objects from the past. And I was thinking he would have loved something like that. Lady's Oracle. It's very much his world of Victoriana and cardboard cutouts and paper patterns and bits and pieces of parlour magic, like conjuring trick objects. And also, I was I loved the fact that he, you know, his his kitchen where where he worked and had his ideas. He used to stay up all night. He called his kitchen the observatory. So he always had this relationship with the stars. Finally, so so we've got kind of a book that you interact with, uh, a sense of magic, predestination, etc. And and I love. Horoscopes. I love the fact that everybody secretly knows their sign. Even if they, don't, even if you don't believe in astrology, even if you say no, it's completely impossible that, that this system could, you know, sort of exert any kind of force on how we behave. Everybody knows their sign. They do secretly, even they don't believe in it. But I wanted to take it a stage further. So the book is constructed around the twelve houses of the zodiac which have been around for thousands of years. You know, we can thank Ptolemy, uh, one of the great sort of Greco-Egyptian astronomers for this set of houses that we have. But I wanted to change all the names, not because I wanted to be willfully obscure, um, but because I wanted to remind myself, as much as anyone else, that names are only habits, they're not the truth. And so, you know, I would read an account that would say, uh, you know, the ancient Egyptians were suspicious of the planet Mars because of its irregular movements through the sky. So there'd be a moment when it goes into retrograde. So it would appear to him to go backwards. And I'm thinking they didn't think Mars did anything because that wasn't Mars to them. Mm -hmm. That was a, a point of light that moved in a particular way that they observed. And now we have it aligned with gods and with, you know, a whole set of um, cultural readings. So that when you use the word Mars, it's very, very loaded down with meaning. And, and so I wanted to sort of like brush all that away. So I gave, I kept the, the, the 12 houses in the, in the calendar order in which Ptolemy established them in. And I also, well, I'll come to the, the connection with the human body in a second. But I changed all the names. So everybody who thinks they know their star sign, they now have a new name for that star sign. And the other aspect that I loved about this, the organisation of this book is that I discovered in my research is that in the Middle Ages and certainly into the early Renaissance, apothecaries, doctors, whatever you want to call sort of medical practitioners of this era would quite often consult astrological guides and they would actually view the human body as a kind of walking calendar so that, you know, as you pass from the top of the head to the soles of the feet, you actually pass through the top Ptolemaic calendar. So, you know, your star sign would also 
be the star sign of a particular part of the body. And I've, I've retained that. So as you read the book, you're actually also passing through the human body from the very top of the head and the eyes all the way to the soles of the feet and the connection with the earth. As an aside, I mean, when probably back in the dim and distant past, Ken, when you first came on this radio show, the, this radio show was probably thematically firmly in that in that sort of idea that there was a you know there was a progression of knowledge mm. and that um, you know things were getting better and better and then now suddenly we all find ourselves living in this you know crazy world of fake news and things and and one of the things that's really interesting is actually I think entirely appropriately astrology seems to be really fashionable again. Uh, that's true. I, I believe that, for example, the um, the Greenwich Observatory is going to do a large exhibition on the history of astrology sometime either this year or next. I, I, I don't know whether that's a straw in the wind and, you know, that the, there is a kind of hurricane of irrationalism heading our way. And as I said, I, I'm not attacking the kind of foundations of a, of, of a project like Little Atoms. You know, I'm, I'm firmly with you, but I think there is a, a conversation going on that's not about you know what what is demonstrably true or false but there is a, a discussion about what how a narrative is is formed and how knowledge actually structures itself and that's that's kind of the foundation of the book is how do we shape knowledge because i was i wasn't just using Cornell's boxes or the the ladies' oracle as a, as an organising point. I was also looking at school textbooks, all kinds of very knowledgeable accounts written of the history of science, of the history of astronomy, and I'm reading and thinking, well, some of this stuff is is out of date now. Some of the books I read as a as a school kid don't actually match the view of the universe that we have now. Does that mean they're false? Does that mean they're untrue? Or is there a larger conversation going on? And, and I'm after that conversation. I mean, I couldn't have written this book if I hadn't spent a lot of time talking with astronomers, talking with people who specialise in various aspects of space medicine and cataloguing the history of, of science and the history of astronomy. Um, and, and I absolutely defer to them. I mean, I think one of the most exciting moments I had when I was working on this book was when an astronomer whose, whose eye was just so disciplined and so skilled could point out to... We were standing on a, a, a metal fire escape in the east end of London. It was, it was summer and it was early evening. And he pointed to two small dots of light that was just above the, going to say the tree line, but the, the, the kind of roof line of the, of the east end. And he said, well, there's Jupiter and Venus. And that's the, this is the closest they get. And it's so rare that you actually see these two planets seemingly in alignment, even though they're millions of miles apart. And it was thrilling. It was really exciting. And I realised my eye is not trained like that. I don't have that skill. And that's why there is actually a rather forlorn little scene near the beginning where I describe myself as a child trying to observe the moon through a pair of plastic toy binoculars and being very disappointed that I couldn't see, you know, jagged craters and rock formations. It was just this kind of yellow blurry thing in the sky. Um, and it, it, it's kind of a that's the kind of reminder to me of how my eye is not trained. And I do have immense respect for those who, as, as someone once said, you know, astronomers never touch the subject that they're working on. They can't, they can't physically, or, you know, their, their physical manipulation of these things is very, very constricted to robots and probes and being able to land a satellite on 
on a, a comet or whatever it is, most of the time they're just looking, they're observing, they're calculating. Um, and I think it's, that's an amazing ability. So uh, to me, to observe, to go into my own kind of Cornell Observatory, I think I'm very good at observing things on Earth. So I quite often mention signs on vans or slogans on posters or something written on a tote bag or or the facade of a museum and so th that became my area of expertise in terms of observing this this universe so no i have massive respect for the for the for the techniques for the science for the skill for the discipline before we go on to look at some of the um the, the chapters in the book um i just wanted you to say something about the illustrations there in it I was extremely fortunate to have a conversation with a with a, a, a lovely gentleman called uh, Ross McFarlane at the Welcome Institute. And I was friend of the show. Friend of the show. Friend of, you know, I think friend of all inquiring minds. You know, a, a, an extraordinarily generous uh, man with his time, with his with his enthusiasm. And, you know, I'm, I, was, I was very happy to thank him in Space Oracle because I was talking about how I wanted to structure the book. And he said, actually, you know, Ken... In our archives at the Welcome, we have an album of amateur astronomical drawings done in India ink and gouache and watercolour. Um, I think they would go really well with what you're writing. Come and have a look at it and see what you think. So, you know, I, I spent this wonderful afternoon with this very delicate 19th century volume of just the most exquisite astrological paintings of the, the various star signs. And um, the final person who gets a, a tribute paid to them at the end of Space Oracle is the unknown uh, astronomer and painter who is responsible for the, for the leaves of this album. There's a signature, but I, it, was, it defied my eye. Um, but it does say uh, the legend Church Lane, Stoke Newington, 1851. And they, they are perfect. They suit. I can't imagine the book now without these, these illustrations. And I wanted the last tribute of the book to be to this unknown individual and their, and their work, you know, over 100, 150 years ago. And, and I, love, I love the fact that they would never know <laughs> that, that their work has suddenly appeared in, in, in a book like this in the 21st century. So there's hope for all of us. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have 
and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. City Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ken Hollings and we're talking about his book, The Space Oracle, A Guide to Your Stars. And Ken, as I said, we're going to go through, you'll be glad to know, not all 12 of the, uh, no, I think of the houses. I think will be glad to know I'm all 12. <laughs> um, I've, I've chosen a, a few random thoughts on a few of them. The first one, which is the first one in the book, Scarab, mm-hmm. as you've called it. Now, since the last time you were on this show, you were seriously ill. Yes. Now there is a there's a section in this first chapter um set in a hospital which I'm not 100% sure if they're related but I presume they were. Um I have a bit like a bit like um, our astrological body various bits of me have had different problems i have i've had several operations on different parts of my anatomy but this was quite an early visit where i'd actually suffered a detached retina and at the time i was working on i I did a series for resonance 104.4 fm called hollingsville where i would interview people around a, a particular theme and it was during one of these programs that i suddenly realized that my sight was going in my left eye and so I had an operation to correct this and because of the nature of the illness and because of the pressing need to have it done I elected to have the operation done on my eye uh, under a local anaesthetic rather than a general one so I was actually awake all the way through uh, this experience and I thought this was a perfect way to start a history of astronomy with the eye and it's, it's also not only do I get to give an account of this operation and the the beautiful sounds that I heard while there were kind of various drills and sutures and lasers going on in my eyeball. Um, but I'm it, already grimacing over I know, here it's what a real, you're going to say. It's a real... And, and I actually, I did a, a piece for Radio 3, actually, about the sounds of that of that operation. But it's also... It's, it's an acknowledgement, because we start with the head, and I particularly start with the eye inside the head, um, because it's it's to remind everybody that this is where astronomy begins in the eye and and I have again nothing but the greatest admiration for the generations of astronomers before the lens before you know I mean Galileo kind of introduced the lens but you know the lens was actually you know being ground in the Middle East in Persia but there is this long tradition of of what was called oculo nudo Mm -hmm. uh, uh, astronomy which is sticking things in your eye yeah the naked eye and and how they would use planes and metal bars and walls and spheres and and quite often these things are monumental they're huge because you don't want them to move so the scale of of, of oculo nudo uh, observation is gigantic. There are these amazing observatories in uh, northern India. These were constructed so that they could correct and refine and revise the Hindu calendar. But these things are gigantic. You know, they, they're like small buildings in themselves, but they would allow you to observe Venus or Sirius or Mars or whatever it might be. And, and I just, as I said, it's, my lack of sight 
was is is part of this homage to the people who had the patience to stare at some tiny point of light in the sky and say, oh, it's just moved a little bit more since last night, you know, and now it's beginning to go down, or now it's beginning to now it's beginning to reverse its its course for some reason. So yeah, Scarab also deals with the beginnings of the light itself. Like I, I pick Scarab because it's the Scarab, the, the the African dung beetle, which which rolls up this ball of dung and then buries it with its eggs, and it the eggs hatch out and they consume the dung, and so more beetles are born. And and the Egyptian observer thought that this was a kind of metaphor for life itself because it seemed like um, what do they call it? Spontaneous generation. I think the alchemists call it. Like suddenly, where have these things come from? And at the same time, I discovered uh, that someone had done research on the scarab, and they discovered that the scarab navigates by the light of the, ga- of the Milky Way. So it actually is able to see polarised light, and it uses that light in order to sort of plot where it's going to leave these eggs, where this dung is going to be left. So I thought this beetle, this tiny creature, is already kind of navigating in a, in a very, very precise way. And I, I just thought it was a... With my eye and the dung, the dung ball being sort of moved through space, and then the, the discovery that a lot of cosmonauts and astronauts, if they spend any protracted amount of time in space, a lot of them develop eye trouble, uh, or they cataract all kinds of things. And it's not unusual for people working in the International Space Station. Certainly, the the Apollo astronauts have all reported seeing sudden streaks of light and sudden points um, that seem to be kind of like whizzing across space. And it took a little while to realise that what they were seeing were actually cosmic rays moving through the the, the fluid in their eyeball. So it, it just seemed like the, the place, to, you know, these are all starting points for me. And then as we sort of roll through the body, we we continue our, our exploration of space through our, our physiology. I want to talk about um, the... The chapter called Ishtab, um, and particularly um, your own first experience of a book, a representation of something called the Dresden Codex. Yes, I I don't normally write about myself in my work. If you look at my previous works, I I'm very much of uh, I'm very much someone who kind of absents themselves. Like I, I want the the images to and the text to work for themselves. But because with the Space Oracle, I was looking at flat historical fact quite often. I discovered that the best way the the humane way to sort of like get into this world was actually through my own experiences so I actually do appear at various points in in the text itself and mostly it's childhood or or adolescence so it's very about my development and and I did have this textbook which which had a reproduction of the Dresden Codex but it was a kind of modern so some graphic designer had kind of redrawn it and I remember being both frightened and fascinated by the depiction of these sky gods at, at war with heaven and they're quite, you know, fascinating skull-faced creatures carrying heavy clubs. Uh, this is a, a Mayan. Yeah, this, I'm thing, sorry. This I is a Mayan. Code. It's one of the few surviving codices. This oh. in itself is an incredible story. So mm. the Spanish basically destroyed everything. All of this. Yeah. All of these books. Mm. Uh, and these, the, the, the Mayans were actually one of the first Central American civilizations to develop a written mm-hmm. language, and they spent centuries observing the stars they 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 were more concerned i love this that they were more concerned about how they were located in time than they were in space so that the geography of where they were didn't interest them anywhere near as much as how the kind of span of their existence fitted into a larger kind of celestial narrative so they wanted to know what all these points of light were telling them and 
quite often these were recorded in, in, well, from the surviving codices that we have, and there's about nine of them, and they're all named after the cities mostly in Europe where they ended up. The Dresden Codex is one of the most famous ones, and these were just like folded papyrus sheets, almost like a roadmap or something, and you'd, un, you'd unfurl them. And, I mean, it, the wonders of, of the internet, you can, there, you can actually get a really beautiful, high-definition PDF scan of the Dresden Codex, as I spent quite a bit of time not reading it, but sort of like looking through it. And I actually found the pages <laughs> that I'd seen as a child in this, in this old textbook, and I was absolutely thrilled. And it was, it was a wonderful moment to see that the actual or, you know, what, what the source material was. And also to discover Ishtab, who is this particularly unusual Mayan goddess. Um, she is the goddess of suicides, and she's actually depicted as hanging by her neck. And the Mayans actually had a very, very different view of taking one's own life. Uh, they actually saw it as a kind of a graceful, noble thing to do. It was, you know, if you were faced with impossible odds, the decent thing, the best thing to do, the kindest thing would be to, to end your own life. And Ishtab would lead those who took their own lives. She would lead them to heaven. She would lead them to the good place. Um, and I was, I was puzzling about this. Like, why would, why would suicide be something that you'd value and then I realised that their view of the cosmos their, their, their view of the, the cosmic calendar as it were was very closely aligned as it was with a large number of cultures at this time with growth and with the, the sort of cycles of fertility you know their view of the universe was was a tree it was you know it, it, the tree quite often appears as this kind of model this growing structure that goes from the from under the ground through earth up into the heavens and so they had a very primitive very basic form of uh, agriculture which was slash and burn and so you needed to time that extremely precisely because if you got it wrong nobody eats nobody eats and there isn't a 7-eleven that you can send out to you know that's it there is no food and it suddenly occurred to me that those that were prepared to sacrifice themselves i could see why they would be considered noble in that sense so i i, I became fascinated by ishtab like this strange almost seductive goddess who will also protect those who who take their own lives. Next, I wanted to talk about a, a section of the book which I thought was was very you, and it's and surprisingly it's not even the one that features Godzilla. Yeah. Um, uh, the the chapter Landsat, which oh, yes. basically sort of starts off a an exploration of the you know the sort of advancing technologies in how we. I guess that moment in history where we started to see images of the planet from outside. So yeah. we started to, you know, see those. We got further, further away from the um, U2 spy plane yeah. um, to Sputnik out to actual satellites taking photographs of the Earth. And this develops into a, a exploration of the changing logo of Universal Pictures. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was particularly, particularly pleased with the way that sequence came out because it's me trying to be an astronomer again and like. I know I'm not going to be very good with a telescope. Anyway, I live in a city. You know, there's so much pollution, I can barely see the stars. And and so I decided to transform myself into an earthbound astronomer, observing how the Universal Pictures logo has changed over the 100, 120 years of its existence. So I, I try and describe, you know, they, they have a basic formula, which is the, the name of the studio kind of appearing around a, a globe or a sphere. But... Over, over decades, this relationship has changed. So it was me trying to do a series of dispassionate descriptions of how 
this this logo has it, it, it it's all bit has kind of changed over over this period of time. And then just one more. We're, we're nearly out of time, but the um, the chapter. I said I was going to talk about this one, so I've got to get it in. Um, the chapter Nebulae um, has, well, you know what we're going to talk about, so I'm not even going to ask you. You can just, you can just describe. Okay, Nebulae. Um, I, yeah, I knew I was going to get into trouble with this one, but I, I, I was starting to, I got very interested in what happens to wastewater in space, like what happens to our physiology. I mean, it's a big pressing issue, and, and in fact, the last chapter of Bright Labyrinth was called Living in Space, so that was the jumping off point into this book. And and I was posing the question like, if this is our destiny, if if humanity is 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 going to leave this world, then we're also going to have to change our physiology enormously. And one of the things I, one of many problems, uh, and there are many problems, is how do you go to the bathroom in space? What what, what does this mean? And and I the starting point was I'd read different accounts about what happens when they jettison urine uh, and wastewater from the ISS or from an Apollo capsule. And apparently it is one of the most beautiful sights that you can see in the galaxy because it's like hundreds of millions of little urine crystals just suddenly sort of just explode and each one of them scintillates in the light and and, and apparently it's a gorgeous sight this kind of amazing golden expanding globe and there's beautiful examples of people observing a kind of wastewater dump uh, from the International Space Station and everyone going what was that? Like this this sudden brilliant streak of light across the sky Um, and I started tracing it Back and I discovered, for example, that um, because of the effects of microgravity, fluids in the body tend to sort of like even out. So that means that your your kidneys get a hell of a battering um, when you're when you're heading, you know, when you when you're leaving Earth's atmosphere and that our gravitational field. So apparently, one of the first things that people that astronauts do is go to the bathroom, and you know, so so, the, so that's one of the first things you're going to do. Yeah, after you've got over the awe and majesty of the site, it's like, all right, where's the loo? And, and I just kept pursuing this further and further. Um, uh, the thing that I, I loved was that I discovered I could trace it all the way back to Robert Hooke and his early studies. He had this theory about snowflakes. He believed that the, the individuality of each snowflake is the result of a perfect crystalline form falling through the atmosphere and getting battered by wind and rain and, and, and all the elements that we that, of our material existence. So what we're seeing is a kind of imperfect rendering of a perfect form. And he was convinced, or had convinced himself, that the perfect form that he was analysing could be discovered by, by freezing human urine. So this is where he was getting his notion of what the crystal looked like was from human urine. So I thought, wait a minute, there is literally a golden thread sort of running through this account. And, and every so often it does still, this theme kind of appears in other houses. So for example, there is, I mean, I'm not obsessed about this. It's just when you start to sort of notice a pattern, you have to go with it. The, the there Yuri is, Gagarin There thing. is the Yuri Gagarin um, ritual where he is, you know, supposed to have when he was in the coach going out to the to, to the Vostok rocket for this for the first uh, human flight into space and and he needs to go to the bathroom so they actually have to stop the, the coach and he gets out and somehow manages to relieve himself against the back wheel of the coach and since then it's it's one of these good luck rites 
that all astronauts do. Like, for example, um, women will sometimes take a, a, a glass vial of their own urine and just sort of throw it on the back wheel. And there is a there is a one cosmonaut actually said, you know, yes, we are, you know, as as, as citizens of the um, Soviet Union, you know, obviously we don't believe in God, we don't believe in spiritual metaphysical forces. But when it comes to superstitions like this, it's best to have everything on your side. So I love the fact that, yeah, we've checked everything, double-checked it, triple-checked it, quadruple-checked it, but you know what? I'm hanging on to me lucky rabbit's foot, or I'm, you know, I'm going to do all these little rituals, and there are so many that take place at Baikonur. Um, and, and I like, it, it just almost is another form of astrology. It's another form of little rite that connects us, or connects them in a positive in a in a hopeful way uh, towards the the the, the heavens so I'm, I'm kind of kind of elevating urine in a way something that we don't think about something that's banal and we all have to do um, I'm sort of saying actually it, it, it connects us to the stars it really really does that's a great point for us to finish on so I've been talking to Ken Hollins we've been talking about his book the space Oracle a guide to your stars which is out now from stranger tractor press Ken thank you so much for coming in and talking to me Thank you so much, Neil. Always a pleasure. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.